welcome. It's so good to be with you today. If you haven't met me before, my name is Cassie Farron, and Alex and I have the privilege of getting to lead, oops, the Jesus community together. Um, this has been a big week for Kansas City, one, and my life. One, uh, the Chiefs are going to the Super Bowl. Yeah. Very exciting. Um, if you don't have plans to celebrate the Super Bowl and you want a place to go, reach out to your microchurch leader. They can get you uh, either details on a gathering that they'll have in their own home or if you refer you to another microchurch that may be doing something fun that evening. And if you don't have a microchurch, it would be great to ask us about it after service. We can get you plugged in. The other reason why this has been a very big week for me is because Alex and I became accidental puppy parents this week. So you may be wondering, how do you become an accidental puppy parent? Well, let me tell you. I did not choose this dog. This dog chose me. I'm in the park. Okay, I'm taking my afternoon break. I have writer's block. I'm trying to work on the sermon. I'm just like, okay, God, help me, praying, thinking, whatever. And I see this puppy like a long ways off. And I'm like, don't acknowledge it. Don't look at it. Don't talk to it. Like, just leave it alone, Cassie. So I did. I just like kept going on my, my merry way. I sit down on the park bench for a while. I'm like there for 15 minutes. And I get up to leave to walk back to my house. And lo and behold, this puppy comes bounding down the hill and follows me all the way home. And I could not get this dog to leave me. And so I call 311, which is like, our local government, this is who you call when you find a stray. And, you know, they get my information down. I tell them about the situation. And they say, well, you know, all of our shelters are full. So would you be willing to keep them for, like, you know, up to five days? Like, no more than that, up to five days. And I was like, well, I mean... I guess we could, but like, we don't have any pets. I'm like, okay, great. Thanks. Bye. Kid you not. Kid you not. Hung up the phone. I was like, wow, that was a really good strategy. Like I could learn a thing or two from your marketing strategy. Genius. Like make me keep the puppy dog. Make me fall in love. Lo and behold, we're keeping the puppy dog. Uh, so he is five months old. So he has a lot of energy and he has peed and pooped in my house so many times this week. So we're going to hope that this sermon goes well because I was very distracted. Uh, no, I think it'll be okay. Uh, but yes, that's big week for us, big week. Uh, so some of you may remember back to this summer, we had some friends of ours come and visit us named Chris and Sharice Grow, and they are church planners and missionaries in Uzbekistan. We support them as a church, and so we got an opportunity to kind of have them come hear their story. They got to meet our community and spend some time with us. And what you might not know about Sharice and Chris is that they've endured a ton of physical suffering over the last couple years. And you wouldn't know this unless you knew them well, because they don't act like it, and they certainly don't look like they have. But Sharice actually gave me permission today to tell you one of those stories. In August of 2021, the Grows were in the country of Georgia for a work conference. I know Alex this week was like, Georgia's a country? And I was like, yes, yes, Georgia's a country. Not just a state, people. It's also a country. In the, so they were in the state of, or excuse me, the country of Georgia for a work conference when Sharice contracted meningitis. And if you don't know, meningitis is an inflammatory disease that attacks the spinal cord and the brain causes swelling. So suffice to say, this was really, really serious. 
And so after being in excruciating pain for three days, she gets admitted to the infectious disease hospital in Georgia, where she's put in isolation in a tiny room with four other infectious disease patients. So so she wasn't sick before. She's going to get sick now. (laughs) And as she lay in that hospital bed, she was pretty sure that she was going to die. The doctors could not figure out whether it was viral or bacterial, so they were just throwing antibiotics at her and hoping that one worked. And she's in so much pain, she could not lift her head off the pillow. And in the 15 days that she was in the hospital, she was forced to sit in her own filth. She had to wear and change her own diaper. She lied in a bed that reeked of other people's stench, and she was unable to shower. And during the first few days of hospitalization, she did a lot of crying. And if any of you say you wouldn't do that, you're not being honest with me. I think we all would. She was grieved knowing that she was leaving her husband and her two small kids alone in this world. She was grieved to know that she was dying alone with none of her family or friends around her. She was grieved to know that she was leaving the people of Central Asia, the people that she had traveled halfway across the world to love. Her prayers were not cohesive. She found herself randomly muttering the phrase, Lord, have mercy on me. She cried out for help. She cried out for healing. She begged God. She pleaded with him. She bargained with him. And she angrily asked him, why? This is not the end of Sharice's story, but I do want to pause here for now and ask the question, have you been here before? Have you been desperate for God to act? Have you watched a loved one wither away or have you been in pain yourself? Have you been unable to do anything but plead with God? I know that I have. Seven years ago, my dad suffered a lip injury, which normally that would not be a big deal for people. I know it sounds kind of funny, but it's actually a huge deal for him because he was a French horn player in the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra. And so this could be completely career ending. He had been in this career for 35 plus years in this orchestra for 35 plus years. We prayed for healing. We desperately cried out for God, to God to intervene. And today he's on disability and he had to give his career up did not experience healing in the way that he thought he would. Three years ago this summer, a a member of my chosen family, she's kind of like a second mom to me, uh, was struggling with cancer. This is the third or fourth time, and she was so sure that God was going to heal her. I remember talking to her daughter on the phone, and her daughter saying, like, I don't know how to tell my mom that I'm pretty sure she's going to die. And she did. She died. For those that know my story, you know that for the last year and a half, Alex and I have been trying to have biological kids. We've prayed for biological kids, and that has not happened for us. And I know that's the story of many in this room. And I know I'm not alone in wondering, does God heal? Why does God allow sickness, disease, and death? Why does God heal some people in this life, but not others? Why do we suffer? And although I cannot hope to fully answer these questions today or maybe ever, 
I do want to respond with maybe the most in question, important question of all, the question that might make these questions bearable, the question that we're going to work to address today, and that is this, does God care? Does he care? That's the question that lies underneath all of these questions. I think the question our heart desperately wants to know an answer to. So this past fall, we started a sermon series called Come Holy Spirit. And the whole point of that sermon series was to achieve the following goals. First of all, to move beyond information into experiences with God. Information, knowledge, they're so important. We have a high value of teaching here but they don't replace experiences with God. Moments where we actually feel his presence, feel his real, tangible being. Second, we want to encounter God in the ordinary. I think it's a misnomer to think that God can only be in the chaotic or the wild or the crazy. And what if he's just in the everyday? What if he has always been speaking to you in the normal, ordinary moments? Third, we want to be radically open to God. That's what we sang about today. I leave my heart open to you, God, to do something I'm not expecting, to do the miraculous. And finally, we want to do the Jesus stuff. Like we say we want to follow Jesus, but only to the point where it's like not too crazy, right? But if we really want to be disciples of his, what does it look like to really do all of the Jesus stuff, not just some of it? So we spent this past fall surveying both the Old and the New Testament, looking for this person of the Holy Spirit, right? The member of the Trinity that is often forgotten or maybe not talked about enough. And then as we started this year, we said, what would it look like to examine the gifts of the Holy Spirit? And as you may have guessed, today we're working on talking about the gift of healing. The gift of healing. Healing is all over the pages of scripture from the Old Testament all the way to the New. We read in Genesis chapter 20 verse 17 that Abraham prays on behalf of Abimelech and it says that God heals him. That's a fun name by the way, say that five times fast. Abimelech, Abimelech, I can't do it. First Kings chapter 17, Elijah calls out to God and God heals a widow's son. In Second Kings, Naaman is sent to Elisha for healing and he's healed. And then healing comes through the person of Jesus Christ, right? The blind see, the lepers are healed. The hemorrhaging woman bleeds no more. Paralytics walk. Jesus sends out the disciples to not just preach the gospel, but to heal the sick. Many children are healed of sicknesses and brought back to life. Lazarus is resurrected, and then Jesus himself performs the greatest miracle of all. He dies and resurrects in a healed body. And healing continues after Jesus in the early church. We, we read some wild stories in Acts about healing. Acts chapter 5 says that healing was so common around the apostle Peter that people would gather in the streets that his shadow might fall on him. And it says they were healed of their diseases when they just caught a little shadow. 
In Acts chapter 19, verse 11, Luke writes this, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even the handkerchiefs and aprons that touched his skin were being carried away to the sick and their diseases were leaving them. The evil spirits came out of them. In Acts chapter 20, we read that Paul preaches a sermon that's so long, a man falls asleep, falls out of a window, dies, and then Paul brings him back to life. Bizarre. I, will, I can't imagine I will do that in my lifetime. Hopefully my sermons will never be that long. Uh, this is likely why healing is mentioned in 1 Corinthians as a gift of the Holy Spirit. It was another ministry of the church, both in the early church and now, just as unlearned languages, teaching, faith, and prophecy are. But here's the thing. Healing is not quite like the other gifts because it requires much more tenderness and much more sensitivity because generally the thing that comes before healing is suffering. I would argue that the gift of healing is probably the most complicated and maybe the one that hurts the most. You might respond to bad teaching with a yawn, like the man that fell out of the window. I don't know if Paul's teaching was bad, it was just long. You may respond to spontaneous tongues with an eye roll, like, ugh, that again. You may disregard a word of prophecy with annoyance. But in response to an unmet request for healing, you may begin to redefine the very God you pray to. And this is what makes this gift so hard. This is probably why we have so many questions. And we see many of these questions posed by two sisters, Mary and Martha, in John chapter 11. And so if you would, turn to the Gospel of John. We'll start in chapter 11, verse 5. It'll also be on the screens for you, or you can follow along in your phone. Anyone works. Any method works. And so let's turn to verse 5 and begin. John writes this. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Pause. That does not make sense. Like I was reading this scripture this week, and I've, I've read this story a lot, right? And so sometimes you just get in the mode of like, okay, yeah, I know what happens next, blah, blah, blah. But I took a second to pause because these two verses seem very incongruent. On one hand, Jesus says he deeply loves Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And then on the other hand, it says he gets a message about Lazarus being ill, and he waits for two days. He doesn't wait for an hour. He doesn't wait for one day to gather up his stuff. No, he intentionally waits for two days. I don't know about you, but I do not associate delayed healing with love. Like when something happens, like suffering, when there's an outcome that I did not desire, I ask, is God angry with me? Is he mad? Does he really care? Why is he not here with me? And yet in this verse, we see that Jesus loves them and delays at the same time. And annoyingly, the scripture does not tell us why. 
We do know that there are some concerns about Jesus's safety. So quick geography lesson, Bethany, which was where Lazarus and Mary and Martha were, was two miles outside of Judea, and Judea had become a really hostile place for Jesus. The Pharisees were plotting to kill him, saying that he was trying to gather or amass an army or a following to go against the Roman Empire. And so to go to Lazarus was a very dangerous thing to do, but that can't be why Jesus waited, because he still goes. So it's not a good answer. Some theorize that Jesus already knew that Lazarus was dead. Jesus actually says as much in verse 14, and it's likely that Lazarus died shortly after the messengers left, because if we do some math, four days have passed when Jesus gets there, so likely Lazarus passes almost as soon as those messengers leave to go deliver the message or the news to Jesus. So it's possible that maybe Jesus was trying to be deliberate in his healing to demonstrate that God can heal even after four days of a man being dead. Others theorize that maybe he was praying for Lazarus during those two days, that he was asking God to preserve Lazarus's body from decay. Maybe he was also praying for God's will in his own journey as he's about to enter his death and resurrection. But again, if I'm being honest, none of these really satisfy Unfortunately, I can't be Bible answer woman today. (laughs) But I wonder if that's actually John's point. Maybe John's point is this. God's love and his delay can occupy the same space. God's love and his delay can occupy the same space. And this is affirmed not just here, But throughout the scripture and the story of Job in Galatians chapter 4 and Philippians chapter 2 and 2 Timothy chapter 4, I wish I had time to go into them, but I don't. And this point actually debunks a very painful and damaging myth that the quality of healing is dependent on the quality of the person. In fact, in moments where individuals are not healed in the gospel, Jesus actually places the blame not on the person who needs to be healed, but on the person who's supposed to be doing the healing. So let's be done with the assumption that the person who is waiting for healing is lacking in faith or hope. Instead, we should be reminded and remind them of how much God loves them. We should remember that delay and love can occupy the same place. And so Jesus delays, but he eventually travels to Bethany. And upon arrival, Martha and Mary have a whole lot of questions for him, as would I. Martha says to Jesus in verse 20, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Or God, why weren't you here for me? Verse 22, Martha says, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She's bargaining with him. God, please, I beg of you, do something now. Surely there is still time. Verse 24, Martha says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. In other words, I know there is a life after death, but couldn't you just do something right now? Act. In verse 32, Mary falls at Jesus' feet weeping and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If only. 
If only you had been here, Jesus. It's not difficult to place ourselves among these sisters, and that is precisely John's point. But notice Jesus' response. Jesus does not chastise Mary or Martha for their if-onlys or their questions. He doesn't scold them for running to him and speaking their mind. He isn't mad at them when they find him confusing, frustrating, or strange. No, instead, he weeps with them. He weeps over the chaos of sin and over the grief it is causing his people. In this moment, God in the flesh weeps for the hurt experienced throughout all of time, for heart disease that will eventually take a parent too soon, for the arthritis that will jam the joints, for the gun violence that diseases our neighborhoods, for the cancer that will ravage bodies. In Jesus's weeping for Lazarus, he weeps with us all. And Jesus knows that there is a day coming when he will defeat death, when he will defeat sin, And everything that comes with it, suffering, disease, and sickness. And he even knows that he is about to heal Lazarus in just a few moments. But for one moment, he weeps. He weeps with us. He shares in the painful reality of life on planet Earth. The sisters don't get all their questions answered. But they see Jesus weep, and it changes everything. It answers the most important question lying underneath all those other questions. Does God care? Yes, he does. See, suffering is bearable if we know God's heart. And here we see Jesus weep with the grieving. He weeps with the weeping. He doesn't answer all of the questions. There is still much around the mystery of suffering. But now we know how God feels about suffering, and it breaks his heart. But let's continue in our story because although Lazarus' healing is delayed, God does heal Lazarus. Beginning in verse 38, John writes, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to see the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus says, take away the stone. If this sounds familiar, it should. This is a parallel to Jesus' own resurrection. I don't have time to go over it, but it's awesome. You should do some study at some point. Verse 41. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. In other words, I know that you care, (laughs) but I am saying this on account that other people around me will know that you care, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Side note, it's so funny that Jesus has to tell them to do this. Hilarious. Somebody help your boy out. 
Scholar and pastor N.T. Wright comments on this passage saying this, the future has burst into the present. The new creation and with it, the resurrection has come forward from the end of time into the middle of time. Jesus has come from God's future into the present, into the mess and muddle of the world we know. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Resurrection isn't just a doctrine. It isn't just a future fact. It is a person. I've spoken at great length about when God doesn't heal, but we know there are times he does. When the future bursts into the present, where for just a moment we glimpse a future in which pain, ugliness, grief, and death have been eradicated, a world in which all things have been made new. And God's healing is not like ibuprofen. It's not like a quick medication to make life easier. No, God's healing is a trail marker, a signpost, a compassionate beacon that points us towards God's kingdom. I want to pause Lazarus's story here to talk about that trail marker, that signpost that happened for Charisse. In the 15 days that Charisse was in the hospital, they switched over her IV eight times because her arm kept swelling up and rejecting it. And one of those times she had her right, I'm gonna try to get through this. She had her right hand outstretched in desperation. She looked at that IV dangling from her arm and to her surprise, she clearly saw Jesus holding her hand. She writes this, I knew it was Jesus because his gaze for me was more love than I have ever felt in my lifetime. He was so tender. He was so near. He was so full of kindness, compassion, love, and empathy. He just sat with me. He didn't change my circumstances. He didn't deliver me in the way that I wanted to be delivered. But he gave me his presence. I remember feeling so utterly alone and yet in complete and perfect presence of Jesus. I felt rejected and forgotten and yet there was a king of the universe who chose to sit right next to me in pain. I sat in my filth, and I looked up at our Savior who hung on a naked cross. A Savior who was despised and rejected, humiliated and mocked, and it was for the first time in my comfortable, privileged life that I understood what it meant that Jesus took our shame. Instead of feeling shame in his presence, I felt such deep love. After five days in the hospital in Georgia, she was airlifted to Istanbul, Turkey, where she received the remainder of her care. Insurance was able to fly Chris and her two boys to Turkey, and she got to see them and hug them for the first time in six days. 
She was discharged after 15 days in the hospital, received a clean bill of health, and although she was very weak for the first two weeks, she hadn't walked at all in the hospital, she regained her strength, and to this day, she's got no lingering side effects or symptoms from the meningitis. But here's the thing. God did not answer all of Sharice's questions. She'd be the first to tell you that. And although he healed her, he did not heal her in the way that she wanted. But he did answer the most important question of all. That question that made all the other questions bearable for her. Yes, Sharice, I am suffering with you. Yes, Sharice, I love you. Yes, Sharice, I care. Both Sharice's story and Lazarus's story are amazing trailers for the feature-length film of our future. One day, we will throw off our grave clothes. One day, we will be totally and completely healed in our physical bodies. But I want to return to Lazarus's story because I think we make a mistake. We think that Lazarus's story ends in chapter 11. But here's the uncomfortable truth. Lazarus dies again. Lazarus has a second funeral. The woman who was hemorrhaging was healed, but she must have died some years later. Bartimaeus was given his sight, but he still ended up in a grave. All of those people Jesus healed in his life eventually died. Lazarus had a second funeral. Side note, I just have to say this. I wonder if he had any edits from his first one, like, oh, I wish that we would have done this, or oh, could you make sure next time I die that you do this? You know, I don't know. I would probably have notes. Here's the really uncomfortable paradox of healing. We should pray that we might get a glimpse of the kingdom while being fully aware that our complete healing will always be delayed. That we will never fully experience that until we are in the loving arms of Jesus and he fully renews this world. His kingdom come to earth. So, the question remains, how do we do this? <laughs> how do we pray for healing or how do we exercise this gift? Worship team, if you want to join me. First of all, I just want to say that healing, like I have mentioned many times, is a difficult and touchy subject. So here's what the gift of healing requires. A community of spiritual maturity and one of pastoral sensitivity. The gift of healing requires a community of spiritual maturity and one of pastoral sensitivity. And so although the prayer or the gift of healing isn't much different than a prayer petition, right? Jesus tells us in his Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread, or in other words, ask me for what you need. Although praying for healing isn't much different than that, I do think that it'd be worthwhile to provide some guidance, as we work to develop that spiritual maturity and pastoral sensitivity. So first piece of guidance is this. We do not heal, God does. We do not heal, God does. 
This is often where the gift of healing kind of goes off the rails. When someone claims to be a powerful healer and or takes responsibility for this kind of ministry, this is often where we see the most abuse, scandal, and chaos. But scripture is clear that we do not heal. God does. That God chooses to use us to heal, to bring his kingdom here on earth. Peter actually illustrates this in Acts chapter 3, verse 12. He heals a lame beggar, and in response to a group of people saying like, oh, you're amazing, what an incredible healer you are, he goes, why do you think I have any power or ability to heal? Only God does. Don't look at me, look at him. Mark 2, excuse me, Mark 2, verse 12, and Mark 5, verse 19, tell us that God alone should be given the glory or the praise when healing takes place. And so we know from Scripture that God heals, we do not. And so we must avoid the temptation to congratulate ourselves when God answers our prayers to heal someone. Similar to my instruction on prophecy last week, the gift of healing requires much humility and honesty. We must say... Only God. Second piece of guidance is this. We should pray for others' healing, knowing that we will not have a 100% success rate. Like any spiritual gifts that we've talked about or discussed so far in this series, we will be unsuccessful. We will fail. We will not always get it right. In fact, many of the times we will get it wrong. But this should not keep us from seeking. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1. Pursue love and eagerly, earnestly desire, deeply commit yourselves to, set your heart on the spiritual gifts. This is not a passive instruction. This is an active one. Earnestly desire the gifts. And so if we should pray for others' healing, we need to have a deep level of humility and honesty, and that means we have to ask for permission. (laughs) We should not assume that everyone wants to be prayed for for healing. Rather, we should ask, hey, is it okay if I prayed for you? Would you be okay with that? Yeah. This gives the individual the ability to say, you know what? No, I'm okay. I'm good. And you respect that. We also ask God to act. We don't demand it. We ask God to act on behalf of others. We do not demand it. Oftentimes, you might hear somebody saying, I, God is going to heal you, right? He is doing it right now. Oof. Let's ask God. <laughs> Let's come together. Ask him for healing. We also have to acknowledge all the ways that God can heal. Doctors, therapy, medicine, rest. God is responsible for biology and chemistry. And he also is responsible for the miraculous. And it's a good idea to acknowledge that he may choose to work through one or the other. My last piece of guidance is this. We should hope for our own healing, knowing that God weeps with us amid our suffering. I want to be clear, death, illness, sickness, disease do not come from God. They are byproducts of sin, and sin comes from the enemy, the serpent, the Satan, as we know him. 
God's desire is for new creation, new life, resurrection, and healing is a foretaste of that promise, that desire. So I want to be clear, God's desire for you is not to be sick. It's not to be diseased. It's not to be suffered. It is to be healed. But if you have suffered or you've watched someone suffer, you know the weight of maintaining that hope is so hard. You know that disappointment is crushing when God delays. And so if you're here today and you're saying, man, I am still waiting for my healing, or maybe even I have given up. <laughs> my encouragement to you today is this. Protect a small ember of hope while being realistic. Try not to despise the well-meaning prayer. Try not to resent the well-wishers. Try to exercise trust in the God who knows suffering and weeps with you. Be reminded that his love can exist in the midst of delay. May we be tender with our prayers, gentle with our hope, and good to one another. Let us pray for healing. And let's start today. If you would stand with me. Lord, um, I recognize with a message like this, there's probably a lot of people in a lot of different spaces. Those who are struggling with an unmet request. Those who are waiting desperately for healing. Those who are watching a loved one suffer and wondering why. Those that have seen a loved one past and saying, if only you had been there, Jesus. And so it's with a great deal of pastoral sensitivity that I come before you today. And I ask you to be with us. I pray for your love to be made evident in the midst of delay. I pray for prayers to be answered, for healing to come. And God, I pray for the greatest gift of healing at all, of all that is to come. May we take great hope in it, knowing that healing is but a signpost, a beacon, a trail marker that points to your true and real desires for us. Complete healing. A God who cares not just about our minds, our hearts, or our souls, but a God who cares about redeeming our whole bodies. We love you, Jesus. Hold our hands today as you held Charisse's. Be with us, God. And it's in your name we pray. Thanks for listening.
listening to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church. Thank you.